Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, Olin prayed about our Christian Life Conference, and uh, it's on the topic of human sexuality. And I understand that the college students that, that come in every year uh, from our various campuses are really excited about this year's conference. I hope you will be too if you're coming. It's a really, really important topic. And I've told our seniors, I don't mean seniors in high school, I mean senior adults, it's really important for them as well. It's been amazing to me how sexual license has affected even nursing homes. I'm serious. And uh, so uh, we, as uh, the older we are, the more we need to be informed about these things and know how to coach those who are behind us. So uh, any of you who would like to come who are not members of Second, we'd love to have you. We are studying 1 Corinthians, and we're in the section, chapters 12 through 14, and on 14 in particular today. The context is Paul's very concerned about their worship services. There are other issues besides the issue of spiritual gifts that he takes up in 12 through 14. Uh, for example, there's the issue of socioeconomic uh, disparity and the rich not being very sensitive at all uh, to the uh, working and poor groups in the church. We saw that in chapter 11. We saw also in chapters 8 through 10 that as far as worship goes, Paul's very concerned that their worship be devoted to the Lord only. You can't worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and also participate in religious festivals of another religion. So there are many issues that have to do with religion. They're driven by a couple of things, maybe more than a couple of things. One is that the Corinthians tend to be what we call Gnostic, G-N-O-S-T-I-C. That is, they, and that's a philosophy of pagans, which suggests that God, the Spirit, cannot have anything to do with the material world. And therefore, uh, material things are all bad, spirit is good. And therefore, we as believers don't have anything to do with issues of the body or with material things. They're irrelevant. And that, of course, leads to moral license because if the body doesn't matter and other people's bodies and food and drink doesn't matter, then uh, we then engage ourselves in all manner of things that are destructive. But the Corinthians tended to be Gnostic and therefore they denied the issues of the body. That's one thing. They, therefore, in their Gnosticism, and this is pre-Gnosticism because Gnosticism as a movement really didn't develop until the next century, but it's pre-Gnostic. In their Gnostic way of thinking, they also thinking that spirit was good, they wanted to be very spiritual beings. And that led to even the speaking of tongues, and you notice in chapter 13 it was called tongues of men and of angels. So they kind of thought of themselves as angelic. Then to combine with their Gnosticism was this huge issue of pride. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 1-4 through and asks them the question, how can it be if Christ died for you and you were an unworthy sinner? And if it's true that those who, have, who are called are not the noble, not the wealthy, not the powerful, but the weak of this world, uh, how can it be that you're boasting about something that you have or you are? So you have this spiritual uh, idea on steroids with pride. And what does that lead to? We've seen in chapters 12 and 13, it leads to this elevation of one's ability to speak in tongues in public and to show that you have a sort of a supernatural gift given by God and to display it to other people. We've seen that the analogy today, of course, would still be in the area of tongues in some cases, but there are other ways in which we like to display our spiritual maturity for the sake of displaying our spiritual maturity, for the sake of vaunting ourselves among other people. So in chapters 12 through 14, Paul's addressing how this is playing out in worship, and they're polluting their worship services with everybody trying to be super spiritual and trying to display proudly what they consider to be the crowning gift that they've been given by God, the gift of glossolalia, the gift of tongues. Now in chapter 12, Paul begins to build his argument. And you'll see in chapters 12 through 14, the issue of tongues just keeps coming up. It's the first gift, it's the gift rather that's mentioned most commonly in all the lists of gifts. 
Every time Paul talks about gifts, tongues is going to be in there. Tongues is mentioned in chapter 12, chapter 13, and multiple times in chapter 14. Obviously, it's the big issue, the presenting issue. And we're concerned with the presenting issue. We're also concerned with the foundational principles that apply to that issue so that we can apply those same principles in our day maybe on some other issues. So we want to drill down and find out how does Paul address this presenting issue because it has a lot to do with how we address other types of issues in our own churches. But in chapter 12, Paul begins his argument, you remember, by saying, look, there's a diversity of gifts. Not only are we one in Christ, but one in Christ, we've been given manifold gifts. Furthermore, everybody doesn't have the same gifts. So he's slicing up their idea that it's the super spiritual who have tongues. He's saying, no way. Uh, Is everybody a preacher? Is everybody an administrator? Is everybody a helper? No, everybody has different gifts. That's, That's the argument in chapter 12. It's an argument for the diversity and the dispersity of gifts of the Spirit. In chapter 13, he gives us the framework, ethical framework for how one does anything, including using your gifts. And the ethical framework is one of love where you're completely other-centered rather than thinking about yourself. And he says, I'll show you a better way. So now he's shown us the diversity of gifts. He's shown us the ethical framework which pervades everything that we do, and that is the framework of love. Now when we come to chapter 14, he's going to return specifically to the issue of tongues. And he's going to show what's wrong with the way they're exercising their gifts in their fellowship together. And I think it'll show us some things we need to remember about our own gifts and how we express those in the fellowship. So let's look at chapter 14, and really it's divided into two parts. We'll look first of all at verses 1 through 25. And uh, here we're going to see that he's going to show us the necessity for our speaking to be intelligible to one another. When we get to verses 26 through 40, He'll show us the necessity for ordering everything in public worship. So the two major categories here, we'll look at the first one right now. Let's begin with chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind 
in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Okay, let's look at this section. And I've entitled it this. He's addressing the individual. And to the individual, he's saying, prophecy surpasses tongues. That's the main message on the presenting issue. That prophecy surpasses tongue speaking. Why? Well, in verses 1 and 2, he says it is more loving because it is intelligible. Duh. It is more intelligible. Now, what is prophecy? There's a lot of discussion about this. Old Testament prophecy, we understand, is the communication of the infallible Word of God. And prophecy sometimes predicts the future. More commonly, prophecy addresses the immediate situation. And so the prophet, in a prophetic way, will address, sometimes in a piercing way, an immediate situation in the name of the Lord and gives infallible speech to that effect. In the New Testament, prophecy seems to be more episodic. We don't get these long prophecies like with Jeremiah or Isaiah. They're in the moment. There also, you'll notice in chapter 14 later on, that these prophecies are weighed by others, probably the elders in the church. So in the New Testament case, prophecy is not infallible. It is a message, we believe, from the Lord through sinful human beings, but the prophecy itself has to be measured. It's not quite the same thing as preaching, but it gets very close to it. Because preaching, if it's from the Word of God, is the Word of God in that sense. And yet, you must measure yourself whether the preacher is teaching you what the Bible actually says. And he has to prove it from the Bible. That's the reason that we dig down into the Bible and say, it seems as though this is what the Bible is saying. Now you judge for yourself. And the preacher is trying to press upon you that idea. He's trying to persuade you from the Bible. But you have to be persuaded. Now, with an Old Testament prophet, it's the Word of God whether you're persuaded or not. Thus saith the Lord in the Old Testament prophets. In the New Testament prophets, there's a measure of conditionality. They're qualified in some ways. And yet we've seen where prophets in the New Testament come out and give true predictions. For example, you remember when Paul was going back to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey? He goes through Caesarea and on the coast of Israel comes upon his old buddy Agabus, and Agabus pleads with him not to go to Jerusalem, binds his hands to his feet and says, uh, the one to whom I'm speaking will be bound just like this. And Paul then has to give his great speech and say, why are you breaking my heart? I'm ready to die for the gospel. And we're told that Luke tells us after that everybody shut up. So the prophecy was true. But Paul was not obeying the prophecy, was he? He took the prophecy as true, but he said there's a higher truth. I'm going to Jerusalem to die for the gospel. I'm willing to die. Of course, he died later. So you'll see that there are these ecstatic prophets in the New Testament that seem to have the skill, the ability given by God to predict the future or to say something in the moment that is very relevant and powerful and necessary. And it seemed as though those prophets were in Corinth because once again, the Corinthians emphasized these demonstrative gifts. Tongue speaking, healing, prophecy, and so on. They had a lot of prophets. So now some of them would be false, some of them would be true, but there would be a lot of prophetic working in the church. Now I was speaking with a friend of mine who's a pastor of an assembly of God church. 
which tends to be charismatic slash Pentecostal. And I asked him one day, I said, what does it mean when you all give prophecies during your service? Because they would have people who would give ecstatic prophecies. And those of you in a Presbyterian church know that you probably fire the pastor if he allowed something like that. We, 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 we like the, the end of this chapter, everything decent and in order. But in my friend's church, they have prophetic, they have moments when people are given prophecies. And here was his answer to me. He's a charismatic Pentecostal. He said, Sandy, it's, it's really like a word of exhortation. I said, oh, now I Presbyterian understand it. Uh, so after the sermon, you'll have two or three people who get up and give a prophecy, but it's really a word of exhortation, usually based upon what was in the Scriptures, but applying it to the people's lives and exhorting them to, to live. That's, I, I really do believe he was correct. That probably is the nature of New Testament prophecy. So yes, it's true, but it has to be weighed, and it's not the same as Old Testament prophecies or New Testament apostolic letters. hope that makes sense. That seems to be what prophecy was as it operated in the New Testament church. Now in the first century, during the season of the apostles, there seemed to be more of this going on in terms of predicting the future. And of course now we find people trying to do this and they bomb out. Uh, and of course when they do, you know what they are, they're false prophets. Uh, but in the, it seems that there was more of this in the first century uh, during the age of the apostles where there were prophetic, uh, futuristic words given. Now, uh, let's notice then that it is loving to prophesy because it is intelligible. The apostle is just making a very clear statement that I may be in love with Jesus and may be able to speak in tongues. Uh, when I was at my table here just a few moments ago, Dan Wimple said, would you just get up and speak in tongues for us? And uh, I, I remember one time, uh, some of you know Tony, Tony Campolo, who is a total nutcase. Uh, and Tony said he grew up in a, in a Pentecostal church. And he said he couldn't speak in tongues. And everybody else did, so he learned to fake it. And he said, here's the way you do it. He said, you just list all the automobiles. And he said, He said it works. Uh, so <laughs> that's the reason I've always said, you know, if I, if I had to speak in tongues, I could fake it like Tony. Uh, I don't mean to demean tongues because you'll find in this text, by the way, Paul is not saying don't speak in tongues. He, you, you read just a moment ago. He says, I speak in tongues more than any of you. And he also says, I wish all of you would speak in tongues. He's only making the point here that tongues for the assembly of people, whether it's a large assembly or a small group assembly, if you're speaking in tongues there, it's not intelligible to anybody. So what you're basically saying is, y'all excuse me for just a moment, I want to have a private time with the Lord without you. And then you go, so you're speaking in tongues. You have your little private relationship with the Lord. So if we're going to speak to the Lord together and hear from the Lord together in community, which is the idea of actually being together, then we're going to use a common language. Uh, we've had people here on different occasions and amen from different uh, nations speaking different languages. And to the best of our ability, uh, we'll put them over here somewhere and put a translator right, right next to them so that they're part of the fellowship. So when we have languages from around, around the world in this room, we always try to provide translators. That's what Paul is saying. Always provide translators. Tongues is fine if somebody can interpret those tongues. Uh, now, you couldn't interpret mine. <laughs> always talking about automobiles. But you need to have an interpreter in order for the entire assembly to be united by that word. That's what he's saying. So he's saying to you, look, tongues, fine. But in the assembly, when you're with Christian people and you're praying to God or listening to the Word, listen to it in a common language where we can all hear it together. Now, uh, secondly, uh, or in, uh, rather underneath that, there, there are two aspects of this loving, intelligible communication. First of all, in verse 3, it encourages and consoles. If I'm listening to you speak in tongues, I'm just wondering what's wrong with me. I'm not encouraged and I'm not consoled. And Paul says here, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. That's the very purpose of our teaching. Whether it's an amen or your small group or your church, whatever, whenever you're teaching, your family worship, it is to encourage and it's to console. 
And so it's not just funerals where we console people with the Word of God. It's every day where we're consoled with the Word of God. We need to be consoled. There's much sadness in this world. And our lives face many dire times and tragedies. We need to be consoled by the Word of God. And we want to be the people who are consoled by the Word of God. And if you're speaking in tongues, I'm not consoled by the Word of God. So let us become experts, says the Apostle, in learning how to look at somebody else and see what they need and serve them. This is the whole problem. The Corinthians were coming to church thinking about themselves. And the Apostle Paul is saying, whenever you go into the assembly, your job is to think about other people. And it's so ironic that we go to church and we spend all of our time when we're assessing church afterwards thinking about whether the choir anthem was on key or the preacher stopped soon enough or it was a message that was relevant to me. And on and on it goes, did I like this? Did I like that? Was the pew too hard? Was the bulletin print too fine? Did they misspell a few words? Instead of assessing, was I able to help Joe? Was I able to encourage Barbara? Was I sensitive to the needs of others? Was I sensitive to the Lord's reverence and awe. So we're to be others-oriented. That's the whole point the Apostle's making. And he's critiquing the Corinthians who are self-oriented in their worship assemblies. Very self-centered. Then he says also, not only encourages and consoles, but it builds others up. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. Now let's stop there for just a moment. The one who speaks in a tongue does build up himself. That's the reason he's saying, I'm not telling you not to speak in tongues. For example, Romans 8. What does Paul say there about the work of the Spirit? That when we don't even know how to intercede for ourselves, he intercedes intercedes with groanings beyond our own ability to express words. So speaking in tongues can just be, oh. And the Lord knows exactly what you mean. To Him it's intelligible. Because He knows your heart, your mind. He has a vocabulary that's way beyond yours. And he can take your groanings and put words to it, and he, know, he interprets it perfectly. He knows perfectly what that groaning means or what those tongues mean. So Paul's not saying, stop groaning, stop speaking in tongues. He's just saying, it's just building you up. And that's good. We want to build you up. But when you're in community, you've got another mindset, and it's not about you anymore. That's what he's saying. Now, if you prophesy, verse 4, you build up the church. And he says, I want all of you to speak in tongues. But the one who prophesies is greater, so that the church may be built up, the end of verse 5. Built up, built up, built up. Do you get the point? When we engage ourselves in the church, as soon as you join a church, you take the responsibility to build up the church. Your sanctification, your holiness, is not just an individual idea. In the Christian religion, your holiness is tied to moving an entire people closer to the Lord. It's part and uh, and parcel of your holiness. You're inextricably connected to a people. So that when there's unholiness going on in part of the body, you're definitely affected. Your family has been troubled. And you immediately go out to check on that situation. It's like our military, our armed services. They don't say, well, listen, I'm based on the East Coast. Hey, if... If the Chinese attack us on the West Coast, that's no problem to me. I'm based on the East. Fire that guy. He doesn't know what his job is. He goes out completely, even around the world, to protect Americans. That's their job. And national security. The same would be true with anybody who becomes a believer and knows what they're doing. You become part of a nation. And you're concerned about their holiness. And you are placed into a local assembly so that you're concerned about its holiness so that you go to that assembly with the idea of advancing the cause of the kingdom in and through those people. That's what it means to join a church. And that's the reason you must join a church. Because you can't live a life of holiness. You can't have an intimate relationship with Christ and separate yourself from His body. That's like saying, I want to date her head, but I really don't like anything from the neck down. That's ridiculous. I'm sure she wouldn't buy that. Actually, usually it's the other way around, isn't it? I like everything from the neck down. And that's how silly it is for us to say, I want a relationship with Christ. I don't want anything to do with this body. Paul's saying, you've forgotten the corporate nature of your relationship with Christ. You, you relate to Him as a member of, a, of the body. And therefore, 
your spiritual gifts and your ministries must be to build up the entire body. You take it to heart and are concerned about it. And that's what prophecy does. Now, how are we built up? And what are we being built up for? Being built up is just like an edifice, just like a building. You have a blueprint, and you're building that building up according to blueprint. Same thing, my friends. You have a blueprint. What is it? Jesus Christ. There's the goal. Everybody here like Jesus Christ. That's the goal. So we've got the blueprint. Now we've got to do the work. What's the work? Well, if you're in a building, you build the foundation. What's the foundation? That the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus is the chief cornerstone. There he is again, Jesus. He keeps coming back, doesn't he? He's, all, he's what it's all about. And then we build that building, brick and mortar. What do you, how do you build the Christian life? Principle upon principle. Truth upon truth by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you deal with it through exhortation and encouragement and even rebuking if we have to, to be sure that the walls are aligned and the building is looking more and more like Jesus Christ, the great temple of the Lord. So we're engaged in this work and that's what prophecy or intelligible speech is meant to do in the church. So we should all become gifted at intelligible speech that helps build other people up to be more like Jesus Christ. You say, well, I'm just not, I'm not real good with words, Pastor. I understand. But you can get better. You know this? You can get better. And in your marriage, if you're married, you have to get better at this because you're to build up your wife. And in that case, there are some peculiar and particular ways you're to speak to her to build her up as her husband in Christ. So we take every relationship we have and we figure out what is needed here from me in intelligible speech to build them up to be more like Jesus Christ. So that's, that's what's behind the apostles' concern for them. Our assemblies are not just opportunities for each of us individually to emote. Our assemblies are to build each other up so that our worship and our praise and our lifestyle is honoring and glorifying to Him. So it builds each other up. That's the reason that it's more loving. Now, B, beginning with verse 6, it is more useful because it engages the mind. Prophecy or intelligible speech is more useful because it engages the mind. Here's the problem with just emotion-based fellowship or emotion-based worship or emotion-based mission is that it doesn't engage the mind. And that's a problem, in case you hadn't considered this before. He says, first of all, for the benefit of others. Once again, on our theme of being others-oriented, we must have intelligible speech that engages the mind because we're thinking about helping other people. And on verse 6, we see, A, we come to fellowship with thoughts. If we're planning to communicate through intelligible speech to build other people up, we have to come into our fellowship with previous thoughts and reflections and ideas. Now, you say, duh. Well, hey, think about it. When you and I go to church, usually, you know, we get up as late as we can. If we have children, that's not as late as with others. And then we have it time, so just by the time the tie is tied or the coat is put on or the blue jeans or whatever you wear to church, uh, we're going out the door and, we, and we, we know exactly where we can park and we've got it timed down three and a half minutes from the parking lot into the back pew. And we might miss the first hymn, but hey, we'll be there in time for the message. And so we're just, think about this, the mentality behind that. No thought, no preparation on your part, you expect the preacher to be prepared. You expect the choir to be prepared. And you don't even think about you being prepared. Paul is saying intelligible speech that is useful has thought behind it. So that you've been reading your Bible this past week? Have you been keeping a journal? On Saturday night or afternoon, did you look at that journal and see what experience you've had with the Lord this week? so that if you're given opportunity, you can share that with somebody. That's what he's saying should be done. Now, in our Protestant churches, except for the Assembly of God and some other 
Pentecostal and charismatic traditions, we often don't have the opportunity we should have for every member to speak. I think all of us need to be considering this. The Corinthians were very charismatic, very uh, dramatic, very democratic. Uh, Ours are more hierarchical in our Protestant tradition. And if you're a Catholic, same would be true, wouldn't it? We need to be thinking about whether there are proper opportunities for this to happen. Maybe that's the reason most people go to church that way, because they're never being expected to say anything. But in our Sunday school classes, or our small groups especially, we're expected to say something and to contribute something. So you think before you get there. You also pray that you will be useful. The preacher will be useful. Others will be useful to the entire body and build it up in Christ. So we come to fellowship with thoughts. Secondly, verses 7-11, through this would be B, we put those thoughts into words. He says, look, if if I've got an instrument over here, like a harp or a flute or a piano, and I say, okay guys, I want you to sing along with me. All right, you ready? That doesn't do much good. But if I put somebody on that instrument who really knows how to play and can make distinct notes and give you a melody, okay, it's very helpful, isn't it? When Michael plays plays for us in the morning, it's very helpful. Supports us and shows us how to sing. Same way with your words. So for those of you who occasionally lead in public prayer, or whether it's a large group or a small group, it's helpful if you think ahead of time and have distinct notes, (laughs) distinct words, ideas, where people can follow along in your prayer. Giving a public prayer with proper grammar is not so that you show off your nice English grammar, but so that people can follow you in the prayer. So when you use the canons of human language, you're simply recognizing you have a group who is trying to pray with you. And you are leading them along. That takes preparation. So if you know you're going to be praying in public, you should prepare. Our pastors usually will sort of write out a prayer, and then sometimes they'll throw the manuscript away and pray extemporaneously, but they prepared the prayer. They know where they're going, what they want to say before the Lord, because they're collecting your thoughts and offering them to the Lord. So they had to think about you. What are your needs? And then they bring those before the Lord in an articulate manner, hopefully. So that's what the apostle is saying. You come to the fellowship with thoughts, and you put those thoughts into words. Now, it's the same uh, idea that uh, in our, for example, in our worship service, it's our, if our choir sings a, a Latin offertory anthem, you almost always find a translation because everybody here doesn't know Latin anymore. So it, it, it doesn't make any sense for our choir to sing something in a foreign language, which they do on occasion, if there's no translation because it doesn't edify the body. And that Latin must be just as theologically sound as it would be in English because there are some people who do read Latin. So we must be very careful what we offer to the Lord and what we offer to each other in our sacred assemblies. That's the point he's making. And then our, our words, we come with thoughts. We put those into words. And in one way in which you can do that, gentlemen, is when you read your Bible. And I hope you do this on a daily basis or something close to that. It's very helpful if you have a journal. Because in the journal, you're basically saying, what are my reflections on what I just read? What does this mean to me? How does this change my life? What did I learn about God and His will for me? And you actually write that in your journal. You're forcing words upon your inarticulate thoughts. And what the apostle is saying, you're going to be more helpful to other people if you not only have some vague thoughts that are, that are godly, but that you learn the discipline of putting those into words that others can understand and follow. And he says in verse 12, see here, our words aim to edify. So thoughts into words, that are for the purpose of encouragement. So if, if you were to say, what's the difference between a theological discourse and a sermon? A theological discourse are theological thoughts, thoughts about God that are put into words and that are accurate, and that are biblical. A sermon or a prophecy is the same thing that aims to edify. So it's one thing for me to talk theologically about the hypostatic union between the deity and the humanity of Christ. It's another matter for me to talk about Emmanuel, God with us, and to talk about the practical application of having a God who has taken on flesh, 
and who is with us. What does it mean for Him to be with us? And how does that change your everyday life? Now there's, see I'm preaching now. So Paul is saying that when you are in the assembly, you're not just thinking theological discourse or not just what does the Bible say. You're, th- you're aiming to encourage and edify the people who are around you. you. You live that way, thinking how you can encourage, console, and build up other people with your words. He says, that's the problem with tongues. And frankly, it's the problem with someone who knows a whole lot about the Bible and can give you all the verses and what, what page they're on and doesn't know how to encourage you. It's the same problem. He's speaking in tongues almost. Now in verses 14 and 15, we find it's not only for others' benefit, but it's actually for our own benefit. Notice how Paul puts this. He says he's now going to show them how when they work on intelligible, theological, and biblical thought that is applicable to other people. Okay, that's what he's talking about. And he's saying when you get your mind in this way, when you're training yourself to think this way, to speak this way, then what happens? It benefits you. He says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Ah, coming from an experienced tongue speaker. He says, when I pray in tongues, my spirit is alive, but my mind is not engaged as it should be. Interesting. So yes, tongues has its value. Our spirit gets engaged. We express our enthusiasm or our deep groanings, but our mind is not engaged as it should be. There's there's an admission from a tongue speaker about the partial benefit of tongues. It's not as good as prophecy because why? Prophecy engages the mind. When you use vocabulary, when you learn vocabulary, when you learn the right words in the right order to express this otherwise inarticulate thought, you are therefore engaging your mind with the Lord and with other people in a way in which you weren't when it was just an inarticulate thought. That's the reason for the care in theology. That's the reason you need to be more precise, perhaps, just as I do, in the expression of my faith. Why? Because the more precise I am in the expression of my faith, the more my mind is engaged in who God is and His will for me. So the finer points are necessary because that means my mind, to a finer degree, is being engaged in God's character and His Word. So, the Bible says in the early pages, and we studied it a couple of years ago in Deuteronomy, we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Give your mind to the Lord. You must worship Him with your mind. Therefore, when you go into a worship service and you're saying, yeah, you know, this tune is a little difficult for me. Good! Try stretching your little brain. And wrap it around a new tune. Learn how to sing a new song. As the psalmist said we must do over and over again. Sing a new song all the earth. Why? Because His mercies are new. There are new things about Him every day. Learn to sing a new song. Get your mind around it. Or to say, you know, I just don't understand these poets. You know, they put, they put nouns where verbs are supposed to be and they put verbs where nouns are supposed to be and they all do it just so they can rhyme on the end of the line. And I just get so confused. Use your brain. And learn how to speak in ways that are appropriate and that communicate the beauty of the truth. And the artistic gift of poets helps us express the beauty of truth. Truth is not just accurate, it's beautiful. And so we adorn truth with language that reflects the gorgeous nature of God's character or what He's saying about the way He's created the world. So once again, instead of resenting the difficulties that are brought to your mind when you go to church. Just say, Lord, open my mind to engage this. Some people in, in worship say, I don't understand why we do that. I don't understand why we do that. Why don't you ask? There's usually a reason in most churches as to why we do this, 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 and this. And it usually has historical reasons and biblical reasons and theological reasons and liturgical reasons and aesthetic reasons. You'd be a whole lot better off to ask the question, why? and engage your mind, and then go to church and offer God everything about you to the best of your ability, including your mind. So, I'm not saying that uh, worship should be for graduate uh, school people only, uh, people with graduate degrees, but I am saying that we all have minds, and we're to bring those to the Lord and make an offering to Him as we deal with each other. And as we do that, the Apostle is saying, it's going to be better for you. Because now you'll be praying with your mind, You'll be singing with your mind. 
because you're forcing yourself to take these inarticulate thoughts and put them into words and communicate them to other people. And you see this, of course, in the Psalms. Let me just give you an example. Turn to Psalm 92. This will be on page 1055. And this is called a song for the Sabbath day. And see what the, we'll see what the psalmist does here. He says, Psalm 92, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name almost high, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness at night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. So the first three verses he's saying, it's good to praise the Lord. In public worship, it's a good thing to do with all the great music and all the rest. But then look at the underlying reasons. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. You see what the psalmist is saying? He's going to praise the Lord because the Lord has been at work and His work has made me glad. So what Sinclair Ferguson says about the Psalms or about worship in general is that it's theology in reverse gear. God reveals to us His person and work. In reverse gear, we feed it back to Him. Oh Lord, You made all things and You sustain them and You redeem sinners. That's feeding God back the theology that He gave us in the Bible and praising Him for it. So we use our minds. We read the Scriptures so that we know how to praise the Lord and how to encourage one another. So, in worship, we must employ our minds consciously and intentionally. Now, he says not only is it for others' benefit in the church, your benefit, but look, uh, verses 16 through 25, it's for outsiders' benefit. That is, someone who's not a member of your church comes. If you're unintelligible, it's gobbledygook. It's that kind of stuff. What's that? What did he just say? I have no idea. I think he's talking about cars. I don't know. But when you enter a church and they're using articulate words and they're using their minds, then the outsider is ministered to and built up. Interesting. Now, this is sort of confusing, but let's start here. He says, first of all, they can join in our prayers. They can say the amen. Anybody can say an amen to your prayer if you're praying intelligently. And notice, they did say the amen. I don't know what church you're in, but I think it's a good thing when the prayer, corporate prayer is given, everybody say the amen together. And that's the reason it's a good thing to, to close by just reminding the Lord that you know that it's all coming to Him in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen. We all say it. Why, what does the amen mean? It means truly. So what you're saying is when there's a corporate prayer, your amen is saying, Lord, that's my prayer too. I join this body to join that prayer to you. We're all praying it together. He spoke it from the lectern, but we're all praying it, Lord. Amen, everybody says. So that's what they were doing in Corinth. I think it's what we should do everywhere. Paul says, how do you expect people to say the amen? How do you expect them to agree with your prayer if they don't know what in the world you prayed about? B, 18 through 20, they can learn from us. He says, I speak in tongues more than all of you, but I'd rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So he's saying, you instruct others when you use the discipline of words and language. So let's learn how to do it so that we can build each other up, even the outsiders. And thirdly, they can repent. In verses 21 through 25, this is what's confusing. He's saying on the one hand, thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign for unbelievers, uh, not for unbelievers but for believers. And then he gives an illustration that shows that prophecy is for the unbelievers <laughs> and tongues are for the believers. You go, what is he saying? I'm completely confused. There are lots of theories about it. But if you'll look at the very beginning, verse 21, he says, in the law, that just means the Old Testament, and this happens to be Isaiah 28, verse 11 and following. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So in Isaiah... Speaking in a foreign language to God's people is an act of God's judgment upon His people. <laughs> so Paul is saying, be very careful how you're using tongues. If you all go speaking in languages you don't understand to each other, you look like the Israelites when they were under judgment. God was speaking to them in ways they couldn't understand. That was part of the judgment. 
So in that sense, yeah, tongues is a sign for believers to judge them. <laughs> that seems to be the irony of what he's saying. But then he goes on to say, look, you think prophecy is just for the believers? It's actually for the unbeliever too. If you will present Christ and the gospel and a, in a Bible lesson in a way that is intelligible and that makes sense and that shows the beauty of Christian truth and how it's lived out in this world, the unbeliever comes in and he sees everybody gathering around this word and everybody's saying the amen together to the prayers. And they're deeply convicted. It's a form of evangelism by our addressing one another honestly and lovingly from the Scriptures. The outsider watches that happening and is himself deeply convicted, falls down on his face, and confesses Christ as Lord. So in addition to directly evangelizing people that may come into your, your assembly, if you'll just be the body of Christ with each other and speak the truth to each other. It's convicting to the outsider. That's what the apostle is saying. So stick with prophecy, he's saying. Stick with intelligible communications. Now, uh, turning on, lastly, to this next section. And let's just read it as we go. Because here in 26 through 40, he's saying to the church, order surpasses chaos. First of all, everybody contributes. He says, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. And the question you and I have to ask ourselves, are we coming to church? Are we coming to our small groups? Are we coming to Sunday school? Are we coming to any assembly that we have prepared and filled up and ready to share with others? He says, everybody comes with a word, an intelligible word. Everybody. So in real believing assemblies of whatever size. It should be an assembly of all the believers, all of whom are coming with something. Secondly, everybody defers. In their case, they were not only speaking in tongues, they were all doing it at the same time. It was chaos in their church. You couldn't under, you, not only could you not understand what a person was saying, you couldn't even hear him because of three or four people around you who were doing the same thing. So they were, nobody was listening to anybody. Sound like church? Yeah, we all go with our self-centered concerns, hoping that somehow we get our, our wounds treated and nobody's listening to anybody else. That's what was happening. He's saying, look, it's not just a matter of you're individually cocooning yourself with God when you're speaking in tongues in public, but you're all doing it at the same time. You obviously have no interest in, in each other's conditions. So he says, everybody defers. He says, wait. He says, One, two or three of you speak Weigh what was said, which you wouldn't say about an Old Testament prophet, but once again, a New Testament prophecy, you weigh what they say. And he either means the congregation weighs it or the elders weigh it. Somebody in authority weighs it to see if it be the truth and react to it. And then the rest of you wait. So you may come prepared to say something and you don't get to say it. That's not a tragedy. Because it's been good for you to articulate what you think about the Lord and what you think about His will for your life. And you've done that work, whether you share it with somebody else or not, but you're there prepared. So two or three at a time and then wait, he says. So when you're in a small group, you know the dominant thing is you want to tell everybody else what you're thinking. Wait. Just take two or three at a time. And you also notice Paul's putting a time limit on here. I've got three minutes left because amen ends at 7.30. That's the way it should be. And sometimes I don't end in church on time. And that's bad because he says, we're not going to hear from everybody today. We've got limits. You know, more is not necessarily better. You ever had that feeling in church? Mm-hmm. I know what you're thinking. Everybody defers. And this has always been a problem. When the Lord is working among a people, there are always excesses. In Jonathan Edwards' day, you'll remember, the first time the revival came sweeping through, there were all kinds of excesses. People were climbing the walls, passing out, barking like dogs. In their excitement about revival and the Lord's presence with them. Edwards realized the second time through, the second wave of the revival, that those things need to be disciplined. And he needed to tell people, stop that. And there are certain excesses that you, you order because God is a God of order, not chaos. So you're to have revival, but it's also to be intelligible. Edwards had to do the same thing. Now, thirdly, and you notice I left so little time for this, he says the women remain silent. Now, obviously, this is what stumps scholars. Obviously, 
Paul doesn't mean strict silence because he's already told the women there to prophesy and to pray. And you'll find that, for, for example, Philip the deacon had four do- uh, unmarried daughters and we're told they were all prophets. So obviously they spoke a lot. They were preachers, if you will, in a certain sense. So the women were speaking in the assembly and they were also praying in the assembly. So what does he mean to be silent? Well, there are different theories, but it appears as though with all the chaos, the women were asking a lot of questions all at the same time. And you know, women are more verbal than men in general. And it appears as though that's what was going on. Paul was just saying basically, ask your husbands when you get home. You know, instead of just shouting out your questions and creating more chaos. And then lastly, he says here, this is, uh, I, think, I think the Presbyterian church put this in the 16th century. No, it was there from the beginning, but this is sort of our key verse here. So my brothers, verse 40, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Isn't that interesting? There's to be real spiritual vitality, which means a lot of extemporaneous speech and acts of love, much enthusiasm and passion, and it's all to be decent and in order. (laughs) I don't know how you do that. And I do think that during non-revival seasons in a church's life, they're really good on the decent and in order part, not so hot on the enthusiasm part. During periods of revival, we get really great on the enthusiasm part and perhaps not always so hot on the decent and orderly. And what the Apostle Paul is saying, in our assemblies together, there to be both. There to be ecstatic speech, passion, extemporaneous engagement with one another, looking to the Lord, sensing His presence, and it's also to be orderly, both for the insiders and the outsiders. Well, this is a big issue. And we now come to the conclusion on that. We move into a chapter next week which begins to introduce a major theological issue in the first century Corinth and in the 21st century Memphis. And it has to do with the resurrection. And it's very, very important. Uh, Let's pray. We'll see you next week. Father, thank You for giving us the Apostle Paul and his brave and courageous and truthful engagement with people he loved in Corinth. And help us to learn from the lessons applied to the first century so that in the 21st century, we too may be thoughtful and ordered and very enthusiastic and passionate about all that we do and say, and particularly in our worship together of You. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.